Welcome to Conversation with H, and we have an incredible guest with us, the Director of Safe Music Management, where she manages Brianka Rose, Joshua Luke Smith, Jake Isaac, and Governor B, co-founder of I Am Independent, a space to resource and help independent music artists grow and thrive. She is the author of Talking to Children About Race, a former radio presenter and session singer. She's a twin sister, a mother, a woman of incredible passion, honesty, and talents. Please help me welcome the amazing, the incredible, Loretta Andrews. <laughs> Better live up to that now. <laughs> How are you doing today? Yeah, good. Really good. Good, good, good. So for those who don't know who you are, who is Loretta? That's a hard question to answer. I don't know how to answer that. Um, I guess I am a mum, mm. um, a creative, and someone who's passionate about seeing people's dreams fulfilled. Mm. I think that pretty much encompasses most of the things I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know as a child, you had like a music-filled childhood, but what was it like to have a music-filled childhood with a twin sister? That is a, that is like, some people grow up and it's like, oh yeah, my parents used to play music around the house, but now you've got a twin sister to basically bounce all this kind of thing off. How, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, it was great because <laughs> you got to sing in harmony. Like we literally learnt harmonies. Like my nan tells this story of us being on a public bus yeah. and we would sing Wills on the Bus in two part harmony, but we would be like knelt up on the seats, like turned right, we'd be at the front. So we would perform. <laughs> To the whole bus, whether they liked it or not, they had to hear Wills on the Bus and Two Bot Harmony. But to this day, I think naturally my voice is like an alto voice, but Sorry. because someone had to be like shoved up on the top harmony, I've always gone around saying I'm a soprano. And a few uh, vocal coaches said, are you sure you're a soprano? I like, yeah. I've always sung soprano because my sister would make me sing higher. So the good oh. thing about having a twin is that you could always harmonize and practice your harmonies. Wow. You know, we had a little two part on Vogue group. So I was Dawn, obviously. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, my dad was a musician, so there was music in the house. My mum, uh, not a musician, but a music lover. Got you. So it was just a massive part of our upbringing. And yeah, straight from young, we auditioned for every school play. And yeah, it was a massive part of growing up that ever since I can remember, I wanted to perform. Really? So when did you realise that I really want to be a singer? When was that point? in your childhood, when did that happen? I feel like I always knew that, but um, I can remember the moments when I thought it could actually happen. Okay. Because I think I, I wanted, I definitely wanted, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Yeah. I think it was that or open my own dog's home. It was something <laughs> random like that. Um, and both my sister and I were just so into music. Yeah. And um, when I was 11 or 12, I just started secondary school. And mm. you know, remember you used to have those careers interviews? Yep, yep, yep. And I had the interview with the lady who said, okay, Loretta, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I just really confidently said, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a singer. I didn't even say I want to be a singer. Oh, I'm you didn't even say I want singer. to be this. Yeah. Like, this is what's going to happen. Yeah, I'm going to be it. Just... <laughs> and then I will never forget this lady's face. She just kind of looked at me with her head on the side and she went, let's think of a more realistic career, shall we? And um, I mean, I kind of could have been crushed by that, but I just remember thinking, I'm going to show you. Quite, <laughs> she yeah. was really trying to manage my expectations. Yeah, she yeah, literally yeah, yeah, said, yeah. look, very few people get to do this. It's a very competitive industry. Mm. You know, there's a, you know, 96% don't do it. And I just thought, ah, oh, there's 4% do yeah. that. I'm going to be that 4%. <laughs> um, so I remember feeling that I would just have to work really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, but it wasn't until I went and did a performing arts course, which was a whole story how I even got to do that when yeah. I was 18. Yeah. 
um, and our teachers on there just the first day just spoke as if we were all going to be in the music industry and I was like oh my gosh are we allowed to say and think this out loud and I remember it was it's a couple called David and Carrie Grant mm -hmm. who ran the course oh, um, yeah. and I the vocal just, coaches yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah so it's a course called the school of creative ministries okay and it was the first time they were just openly so when you go to your sessions you be like as if we're going to be doing it yeah, and I yeah. remember thinking oh they think we can do this maybe I can do this even though I'd enrolled on the course and that was my dream yeah I I still didn't until that moment think this is going to be my life and this can happen because there were so many factors telling me how hard it was going to be how it couldn't happen yeah, and yeah. it made sense statistically you know just from this single parent mm. um council state family why should I have my dreams come true mm. um but yeah um I really wanted to find that teacher when I got my first because I remember saying to her I'm going to be on top of the pops uh, and then I was many times, about five or six times we performed in, in my session singing career. And I always hoped she was watching and recognised me. <laughs> oh, she was tuned in. <laughs> yeah, there's that girl I told would never be a singer. <laughs> so what's happening between 11 and 18? Because at 11 you're saying, like, I'm going to be a singer. She then tells you, oh, maybe let's, let's kind of taper that dream to a certain degree. And it's only when you reach to 18 years old that you really mm. think, I can actually do this. So what's happening in between that time? So um, I think it's still the case now, but when you choose your options at school, mm -hmm. they put all stack all the creative ones against each other so you can choose, choose one. one. Yep. So I wanted to do dance, drama, art, all of those. I loved all of the creative things yeah. and you were allowed to choose one thing. So I chose music, even though I don't actually read music. Oh, yeah. um, I've always done things by ear. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously you have to do your science and all of those things. And I had a music teacher at the time who, funny enough, still in touch with now. And he was a, a working jazz musician mm. and he really saw something in me and my sister. And he would get us singing like Randy Crawford's Street Life yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, introduce me. For my exam piece, I did um, Aretha Franklin, Baby, I Love You. Um, and he, he was like this w white teacher, but yeah. he just really encouraged us to do the music we'd listen to. And I, I listened to loads of 70s soul because mm. that's what my dad was into. So we always listened to music that was generations before us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so we were just, he, he just encouraged us to just uh, audition for anything that you can. Mm. Um, and I just, I don't think I even, I still didn't think, oh, it's just going to be a hobby. I just sort of moved forward in life doing the, the thing of school that you had to do. Mm. And then when it came to, I did my A-levels and again, there was no creative one. So now you can do things even like media studies that yeah. they didn't even have that. So I did a sociology, English literature and history. Um, and the only one I enjoyed was sociology. And the funny thing is when I was um, in a schools band a few years later, we went back to my secretary school and my history teacher introduced me to say, now a former pupil, Loretta Andrews, who I will never forget the day she was my star pupil. And she came to me and told me she had better things to do in her life than history. <laughs> I went up to my office and said, did I say that? He went, I, I actually was a bit gutted when you said that. Cause, and I said, I'm so sorry, I don't even remember saying that. But that does sound like the sort of thing I would say. <laughs> he said, all I wanted to do was at lunchtime be in the music block, like singing Mariah Carey. So history was a waste of time. But can you believe I was so arrogant to say that to my teacher? But so, yeah, I, I just did the whole school thing. And I was even going to go to university. Um, I think the closest to performing I could find was by then they did have, um, I think it was theory of media or yeah, something yeah. like that. 
and I applied for a few um, and there was a course in Birmingham actually um, that looked the most practical I and mean, it was like 20% practical and the yeah, rest yeah. theory but it's like okay maybe that that maybe way I'll get into TV or something and my predicted grades were actually really good this is why this teacher said he was so gutted um, and I got accepted into that course and they had they literally said they had 13 places mm. and like hundreds of pupils but I didn't really wasn't passionate about their course oh, yeah. and then in the meantime since I'd applied I'd found another one which was much um, more practical yeah, yeah, yeah. so I and you didn't need nearly as good grades as this Birmingham one was really competitive so I applied just thinking oh, I'll get into that and I didn't get in I got rejected and I just didn't get it and I was a Christian by then yeah. I became a Christian when I was around 14 yeah and I remember being really angry and like having this conversation with God going how can I get into this one I don't want that's yeah. really competitive and not, this one wasn't even a university it was like I think they were called polytechnics yeah, back yeah. then. Nobody wanted to go there, like you needed rubbish grades. Wow. And I really felt him say, hold out for what you really want. And I was like, don't know what that means. And I'm really angry. <laughs> and then two weeks, I was like, I guess I'll be going to the Boeing one. Two weeks later, I opened a magazine. It's not even in print anymore. It's like a music magazine, mm. uh, a, a Christian music magazine. And in there, there was an advert that said, do you love singing? Do you love acting? Um, do you love God? Do you want to make a difference? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, in the cartoon, it like jumps out at you. And it said, come and audition for the School of Creative Ministries. Wow. And I'd never heard, I didn't even know such a thing existed. Yeah. Um, so both my sister and I, she was set to go to a different university to do a course she didn't want to do. Yeah. Um, and we went up to London for the day. We, we grew up in Milton Keynes yeah. and um, the audition was in front of David and Carrie Grant. They'd started this course uh, with a church called Kensington Temple. Yeah. And I'd never done an audition in my life, apart from school plays where you just had to sing a song. We had to act, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, deliver a piece of poetry and then sing. So the singing was fine yeah, yeah, and, you and you had to do a dance, but the, I can't act to save my life. Like. Honestly, it was so cringe. What was it? What What did you have? To, what did you think to do? Did they give it to you and say, "Okay, you need to act out this," or did you have something already pre-planned? It just pre they just said, "Bring a piece." So I was like, "I don't know." So I had a friend who was really into acting, and he suggested um, it was a youth leader, and he suggested this one where all I remember it is that I had to pretend I was doing like a fitness instructor. See, even saying it, like, I'm literally cringing inside. <laughs> so I had to deliver this fitness instruction yeah. type thing. I mean, like, how is that even a sketch? It was a sketch. Yeah. And I think I forgot in the middle of it. And I, I think I actually stopped and went, shall I just stop? And I think they were like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, just, just go on to your song. <laughs> and luckily, I smashed it with the song. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. somehow they must have thought had potential because we, we managed to get in, even with that awful, awful, like, the worst audition I've done. So we got got in, but the next challenge was you had to pay for this course. God, um, yeah. And I was just like, how are we going to do this? And we came from pretty humble backgrounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and a load of friends in our church just really encouraged us. And um, over the course of a few weeks, um, people put money for our door anonymously. To this day, I don't know who it was from. And we got, not for the whole year, but we got the money for the first term. So mm. we kind of took that as a thing to say, okay, let's do, do this. So yeah, then had to, all of this, we had three weeks to do it all. Found a flat in London uh, and, and moved and did that. So it was only a year course, it was a diploma, but that was a life-changing year for me. 
Um, and it's just interesting because, like you say, what happened between 11 and 18 is just I, I lived my life just mm -hmm. singing in my bedroom to Whitney Houston and Mariah and just thinking it was a dream. But um, something with those few weeks that just told me to not settle mm. for second best. Um, so, yeah. So how do you go from that passionate about singing to you eventually like doing your sessions singing as you get older, but then you, you stop? singing yeah well i think what i'd always known so to take a little bit of a step back yeah. is um so i didn't grow up in a christian family at all mm -hmm. and um i really felt a sense of that i was here for a reason though mm. and it all made sense the night that i did become a christian when i was around 14. Mm. and i think the six months afterwards um i was at our youth at our church these American Christians came over who mm. were like dancing and singing mm. and talking about their faith and I just thought it was the best thing ever looking back now it's probably a bit cringe but they were just I just like this is amazing they're using their talents and they're talking about their faith mm. and I remember thinking I want to make a difference through mm. music mm. and I was really clear that that's what I was here for mm -hmm. and it's funny because as I've moved through the different things I always go back to that, Does, is this making a difference and is it through music? So mm. it's, it's helped me to, to make my decisions. So after I did the School of Creative Ministries, I went into session singing. My first session was on the Brit Awards, um, doing backup vocals for Sting and M wow. People. So that's, I was still 18 then. Mm. Um, and I, I started doing a load of session singing, but then I again had my second audition, which is a bit more successful than the first one, <laughs> was to work with a band in Manchester yeah, called yeah. the Worldwide Message Tribe, who okay. were then known as, as the, the tribe, and which is the message up in Manchester. Mm -hmm. And again, I felt like, oh, this is an opportunity to make a difference through music. Mm -hmm. And then went on to be in a band called Shine. And then after that, I went back to being in a band called United Colours of Sound, which mm. was back working with David and Carrie Grant. Yeah. And um, it was an amazing band. There was like 12 lead singers was the idea with 12 nice. different looks and uh, just amazing singers. I was constantly listening to the other singers, forgetting to sing my part because they were so <laughs> awesome. But for about a year, we just um, tried to get signed mm -hmm. and we ended up just rehearsing for showcase after showcase. We had a lot of major label interest mm. and I just got really disillusioned with this sort of treadmill of you know um we got bottom drawed a lot which was um major labels saying they really wanted to work with you mm. so they would make it so you weren't free to work, to work with anyone else but they weren't actually recording with us getting us to release music and it was a real eye-opener for the other side of the industry until then I'd really enjoyed it and I was mm. like this is awful. I feel like my life is on hold and in these people's hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just got really disillusioned with it. And I was like, I, I need to get a grown up job. So I decided to go back to university mm. um, as a mature student by then. I mean, it's in my early 20s. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and again, with the view to go into television. So I really thought I'd left music behind. Yeah. But music is like that toxic lover you keep going back to. <laughs> you can't quite you. leave them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I did this course in media arts and it was in radio, TV and magazine publishing. Mm -hmm. But I was like, oh, I'm going to do TV. Never thought of radio. And we had to do a taster course in radio. Yeah. And during that term, I just fell in love with radio. I loved, as you can hear, I love talking. <laughs> I love people's stories <laughs> and I love music. So yeah, I yeah. changed my whole degree to focus on the radio. 
Um, and yeah, I graduated with a first class honours, which yes. I never thought I would do. I was the first person in our family to go to university. I mean, my sister's now doing a PhD in music yeah. psychology, so it's not quite that, <laughs> but still, it was still a degree. Yeah. And from there, I, I, I changed careers to radio for a number of years. So how did that, being bottom drawed by these labels, being told this thing by the labels, that not happening, what impression did that leave on you in terms of the music industry? I think I had to separate, and I always say this to people, you have to remember that the, it's called the music business. Mm. And that business side doesn't care about you, mm. doesn't to an extent care about music. And music is so important to me. Mm. It's such a powerful thing. I love the way it can transcend language and barriers and, mm. you know, it can start revolutions, it can heal, it can do all these things. Mm. Um, and it's shame, a shame that it's been made into a commodity, but I do get it. They're running a business and they, anything that's valuable, you can make money out of. Yeah. Um, but how it's changed my view, I think, and subsequently with any artists I've worked with since then and that I'd speak to is just that thing of separating your identity from who you are and what you do. Mm. Um, and because otherwise you're up when they're saying you're the next best thing. And then, you know, I saw so many friends, just for having friends in the music industry who mm. were dropped. Mm. And the message to them was there's something wrong with me or I'm not good enough. And that was because they were only going to um, sell 50,000 albums instead of 70,000. You know, I'm like, that's a success. You're, mm your talent and your value is is not held in this industry. Mm. And I think seeing that side of it, how, you know, it was just about how much money we could make mm. um, and whether it was enough or, or what they wanted us to, really opened my eyes to that there's a lot of people who were just kind of rinsing artists, mm -hmm. not caring about things about like their mental health. Mm. That wasn't even a conversation back then. Um, but it, I was, Glad to have seen that because a lot of musicians, young musicians in particular, can be very naive going into the industry, and I was. Mm. Um, and it's a very quick and sharp lesson to learn, but a valuable one. So if we couple that, the fact that you enjoyed doing radio, doing, doing the course, and then the fact that you saw these things happening to music industry friends or artists who were trying to come up, that then kind of links in with why you started unsigned in terms of your, your, yeah. radios, your radio show and also the live shows as well. Does your, does what happened to you feel why you started that essentially? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think so my first radio job was at Premier Radio and mm. I started as an assistant producer there. Mm -hmm. And then I worked on the breakfast show. Um, and then obviously working in Christian music is very niche. Yeah. Um, and particularly working for um, the station I worked for, there was a lot of, worship music and this was even before pre uh, premier gospel days when yeah. i first worked there and it was a lot of music that was not the music i like to listen to <laughs> um even as a christian yeah, yeah, um yeah. and it i kept meeting these music but at that time i was in a band again with my sister mm -hmm. um just on the local circuit and that was more as a creative outlet mm. and i kept bumping into people on the circuit who just happened to be Christians mm. who were doing amazing music. And I was like, where's their music going to get played? Mm. Because they're not probably going to just go and be played on a national station or even a local one at that point. Mm. Um, and also the station I, I work at is probably not going to play their, their music either. Mm. So I basically pitched to the station, could I 
do and sort of based on the like live lounge idea mm -hmm. where unsigned artists who were doing any genre of music other than you know kind of praise and worship mm. um, would just come talk about their music and uh, perform a few songs so they said I could make a pilot series which I did and it, it went really well and I you know was just inundated every single day I received music from people and they put their whole heart into it. And I would just really feel for these artists. And mm. I just felt like they deserved uh, a corner. And it was a very small corner, but the amount of people, I was at a big church day out the other weekend and the amount of people I hadn't seen for ages and said, oh, I had my first interview on your show. And so many people have said that to me. And it was a very small show in a very small corner. But I think even the idea of the church uh, catching up with the fact that there was artists who had a strong faith that perhaps their music was going to be outside of the church. Mm. Um, having a platform for, for their talent to be heard um, started there and that's why it then went on to be in a, a live event which was bi-monthly, again mm -hmm. just to give people a gig opportunity. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and I loved it. I met so many amazing people there including some of the artists that I manage. So you've nicely transitioned onto my next question because you just said some of the artists that I, that I now manage. But before you started managing people, you weren't trying to hear people say, can you manage me? Can you manage me? Like you really that didn't allow that to happen. What was stopping you? I think in my head, I was, because I was still performing at that stage, but definitely it was more of a sideline thing. Yeah. Um, but I just saw myself as an artist and a, and a creative, but I really enjoyed giving advice. So often what would happen is people would come into the studio, we'd mm. do the interview and off air, we'd have a longer conversation um, because they would come in with this music yeah. that I just thought was great. You know, I, did, I didn't interview everyone. I did have a, a, a section in the show where whatever the standard, I would give someone some airplay and play yeah, some yeah, song. Yeah. But in terms of people who were invited in, there were people who I genuinely thought were talented mm. and, and, and just were going to go somewhere. Yeah. And I'd say to them, well, what's your plan? This is great. And invariably, so many of them say, oh, I, I don't know, really. I've just made this album. I hadn't thought about that. Mm. And I would just give them advice or I'd say, oh, I know this great producer that would really work well with you. And I'd put people in touch and I just really enjoyed doing that. And then a few people started, a few friends said, mm. you'd make a really good manager. And I just was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm not a manager, I'm a creative. And then they were just like, no, you know, you really would. And then it was Governor B, who was a, a friend of mine, and he was just like, you'd make a really good manager, you know. I was like, oh, not you as well. And I went, no, I just really enjoy mentoring people. And he went, well, isn't that what a good manager's mm -hmm. meant to be? And I was like, oh, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> so to start with, in my head, I had to call it something different. Because okay. I also thought, how am I qualified? Um, and then it's really weird because once you start doing it, because mm. again, now you can do degrees in music management, but you yep. couldn't back then. And I don't think by then I'd been, you know, in music since I was 16. Yeah. So I'd had like 20 years experience and I didn't realise how much I'd picked up along the way through being a session singer, through all the different aspects and how that more than qualified. But I mean, I still get imposter syndrome now. But yeah, I gave hold in. Hold on, hold on. Before we, <laughs> before we continue, you still get imposter syndrome now considering the amount of people you've helped through your show, the people that you manage, who I only imagine will give you a glowing recommendation, glowing report <laughs> of what you've done for them. You still, and you've been recognised by by uh, managers and, and different kind of, uh, what's the word, different people and organisations in terms of how well you are as a manager. You've been brought in to give 
speeches and do interviews and all these kind of things and you still have imposter syndrome even though all these <laughs> things is happening for you this is what i say to my artists because all artists no matter how um, successful they are they get imposter syndrome maybe now and they're like should i be doing this don't feel like i could do another album I'm like are you nuts but i suppose you can never see it yourself mm. and also there's always going to be somebody who's further on than you yeah and this is i mean i have to take my own mm. advice that i give is mm. that you just can't do the comparison game and what i do know in terms of being a manager sometimes your your work ethic and your dedication to your artists and what you can see in them and what you can draw out and put in a plan together and being willing to take a bullet for them and all mm. of those things is worth more than being you know some big hotshot person and i i'm seeing that now mm. and i think the power of relationship and i've everything I've ever done in my career anyway has mm. been led by relationships. Mm. Um, that's why I think I've got the best artists in the world. I mean, I know I would say that, but they are <laughs> amazing, but yeah. also amazing people, like they're mm. friends of mine. Yeah, Again, yeah, yeah. someone, when I started management, I won't say who, but somebody who I think you know said, <laughs> don't manage your friends and don't be friends with your, your, your artists. They're my best mates. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, one of them, I'm the godmother to their child. And and that's just how I do things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't set, um, separate business and relationship. They're family to mm. me. And whenever I've led by relationship with anything that I've done, even business wise, mm -hmm. um, then it, it's always gone gone well for me. I think I'm a quite a good judge of character anyway. Yeah, 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 but yeah. also I'm like, you can be a good business person and be a nice person. Yeah. It's possible. You don't have to be this cutthroat, really aloof person to get on in life. And, and um, my music company is called Safe Music because I wanted everything about it to feel safe. Mm. Safe for artists, um, safe to fail if you need to and feel like a safe place um, because so much of the music industry doesn't feel safe. Mm. Um, so yeah, but I still sometimes, you know, get those moments when I'm like, can I do this? <laughs> to me, obviously seeing from the outside in what you've been able to accomplish and do is very amazing to me because it's like, you've pivoted every single time. So you were singing and you still carried on to sing, but you pivoted to radio did the radio and then so people like oh you should do this and you've pivoted to music management there's another thing that you've pivoted to that we'll talk about later on um, in terms of you being an author as well but you've just shown a willingness to pivot and be successful at that so the imposter syndrome that you have to me I get why people get it and everyone has it but to me it's like you've achieved so much and been able to pivot successfully Although I may not feel like that all the time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. No, I, I mean, I do silence that voice mm -hmm. a lot quicker than I used to, <laughs> yeah. but it still tries to it sometimes, to yeah, especially if you're going into a new situation. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I just kind of slap it down a bit more now, a bit quicker these days. <laughs> what advice do you wish you'd had when you first like, when you first became a manager? So I remember saying a lot, and I, I think I say it now sometimes, almost more out of habit now, is, mm. oh, I feel like I'm making it up as I go along. Um, and then I realised, oh, so is everyone else. <laughs> Every time I would actually get in a room with a manager who I thought, oh, they're just killing it yeah, yeah, yeah. and just ask them, they were still like, oh, you know, even especially if they were a lot older than me. And mm. I'm just like, wow, they've got these really established arches. They're like, this 
social media thing i'm just trying to get my head around it. i'm like there's always going to be an area that people feel is, is new to them yeah, yeah, and yeah. they can feel intimidated by and we're all making it up as we go along and that's yeah. actually okay yeah, yeah. and i have a lot more i've always been one of these people that is happy to say when i don't understand something mm. i just say i don't know but i'll find out for you um and i the the opposite is true when i've had people who i can tell they're pretending they know an answer to something and they i would rather them say i just don't know yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or let's find out together and um, I think in terms of approaching my learning journey and anything that I've done from that perspective that mm. I've always got something to learn. I've learned from people much younger than me. Mm. I've learned from people much older than me. I've learned from people who aren't in management, but the way they do whatever they're doing in their life. Mm. So there's once we think we know it all, then we've stopped learning. But when we realize that there's always something to learn and always will be, mm. then I think you can just see the whole thing as a journey. So I kind of wish that I'd relaxed into more being okay that I don't know everything. Mm. Um, and yeah, and be, being uh, aware of the fact that everyone's making it up as they go along, <laughs> especially in music, because it's constantly changing. Yeah, you just yeah, get your yeah. head around one thing and something new comes up, so. Would you say that's your big, biggest learning curve in music as well? Or would you say there was something else that you learned, not so much from a managerial perspective, just music in general? My biggest learning curve as a manager um, which I don't talk about a lot, hmm. um, was a really negative experience I had right near the beginning. Oh, wow. That since I've spoken to other managers, every single one says that will always have to you. At you're lucky if it only happened once in your career. And I, I worked with an artist hmm. and it very quickly went wrong and they went off behind my back with another um, manager and all of this. And it happened within like the first year. Wow. And it was quite painful at the time, but also, it's funny because this artist was incredibly talented, incredibly mm. talented. But at the same time, there was always something that didn't quite align. Mm. And I didn't really listen to that because they were so talented. I was like, this is a no brainer. You know, the yeah. success that we both have with this first one. And then it opened the door for all the other things. And with that happening, um, I'm so grateful it happened so early on because mm. through that experience, I learned that for me and maybe other managers do it differently but i know i have to have a connection with the artist mm. our values have to align yep. and i've never worked with someone where that where i don't feel that mm. since then and the other thing is having the same definition of success um we've all got different definitions of success but knowing what it is and being mm. able to be on board all of the artists i work with are incredibly talented but they also want to do something bigger than their art mm -hmm. and going back to what i said before i know my life's about making a difference through music mm. so making sure those things are aligned so that was a really steep learning curve to the the kind of betrayal aspect mm. um and funny enough it's made me more trusting as long as i align with those things Got you. but I have to listen to that really even if on paper it look, makes sense or yeah, yeah. the opposite doesn't make sense um I listen to that now and it, it's it's not failed me yet since I've done that something interesting that you said is that it's made you more trusting but then I think what was the most important thing was that you said you have to be aligned with that person mm -hmm. like your values the what they see as success has to align even though you're now more trusting considering you've been betrayed, but it seems like the alignment, if the alignment is correct, then you'll know that, okay, maybe this is something, as long as that little voice inside is saying, go for it or do that, that's where you start, that's where you look at it rather than, I'm less trusting now because that happened to me then. Mm. It's I'm because it's a relationship. Like mm. the, 
the artist manager relationship is a really close relationship mm. and if you think about it in terms of other relationships if you choose poorly um, which we can all make mistakes with mm. but if you consistently choose poorly it's then it's not about that there's something wrong with relationships it's your your the choices you're making mm. um and i that's how i realize it's about the artists i choose to work with mm. and aligning those values and although you can never say how something's going to work out mm. uh, just in the same way that you wouldn't force someone to stay in relationship with you who doesn't want to yep. if if they want to go then the best thing to do is to to let them go where yep. there's freedom there and you're choosing to work together because there's True. an alignment of values that's where success will come in any form of relationship mm. so session singer radio presenter music manager co-founder of I am independent what have all these things taught you as a person so many things so many things i think um the biggest so to go back to my comment about um my definition of success mm -hmm. so my definition definition of success is doing what you're created to do mm -hmm. so whatever that may be doing that is already a success. Whether someone pats you on the back for it, gives you lots of money for mm -hmm. it or not, mm -hmm. doing that, you're already successful. So I think every time I've taken a move that's followed um, that sort of inner compass of, is this making a difference through music? Mm -hmm. I've realized that everything I've done before has contributed to the next moment. So from where I sit now, I think music management is my favorite job out mm. of everything I've done. It, even the performing stuff, which I loved, you know, just it's amazing things that I, I never should have got to have done as mm. this little council state brown girl from Milton Keynes, <laughs> you know, and, you know, I had to pinch myself some of the, the performances and places we got to go to. Yeah. But the fulfillment I get now from being able to see that in other people and help to plan towards those dreams becoming a reality, mm is so fulfilling for me um, and I think it's taught me that to, to make to walk in the direction of your dreams not seeing the full picture um, and expecting for the universe to align because it's what you're created to do mm. and then to clear the path to do that for others as well mm. if we're only letting ourselves through in anything then to me we're, we're getting it wrong yeah you know that's partly why I do I am independent. I can't, I get a lot of people asking me to manage them now and I can't do all of that, mm. but I genuinely want to see people win. There's, when people say, well, you know, keep your secrets to yourself. I, I'm not interested in, in that. If I found a contact that has worked for one of my artists, someone mm. says, oh, what did you do for that campaign? Mm. I'm so happy to share information because we should all, there's enough room for everybody. Yep. Um, and holding that door open for artists to come and instilling uh, confidence. It's a very difficult waters to navigate, mm. to be an independent artist in particular. And you have to be so resilient. There's so much rejection. You're very much on your own. And if there's any way that any of the things I do and that my artists, can, artists do can support and help people in that, mm. um, I want that to be my, my legacy, I think. So yeah. I think the thing I've learned is to make sure that everything I do leaves a mark that shows the way to anyone who's coming 
after me. Anywhere that I've been, that I've left a few flags and pointers that might help somebody else, hopefully. That's so good, Loretta. Like, really, that is re that's so good to hear because not everyone thinks that way, especially in the world that we live in now. Not everyone's thinking, oh, how do I put out this path for someone else to walk along it? Um, so then essentially when they get to where I finish, they start to create their own path from mm. what I've been able to leave behind. Um, not everyone thinks like that. A lot of people think, okay, I'm here now. Let me get everything that I, that I can from it now. And then you've not really passed on any advice or given anything to anyone. So people are kind of lost or thinking, okay, I'm really having to start again rather than start from where you left off, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, how do you do all these things as well as be a parent as well? That's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> I could ask you the same. Um, it's funny because the whole life balance, work-life balance question is, is a, just a difficult one, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And uh, forgive me, but I think that's even more difficult for women. I think the expectations oh, yeah, to, to balance all of those things. And just like management, I'm making it up as I go along. Um, <laughs> there are definitely times when I felt like I was failing and mm -hmm. trying to do too many things. But one thing that I've always wanted to do for my son is model to him how I would want him to feel about his life. Mm. So I really want him to believe and go for his dreams and what he is created to do. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. if I'm not doing that, mm. so the times when I have like, oh, I'm, I'm going off on another tour, I'm doing this. I was like, oh, and you get that mum guilt thing. Mm -hmm. Then I was just like, at least I'm showing him that I can, can do this. Mm -hmm. Um, and why I'm doing it. And I try and involve him and bring him along yeah. as much as possible. But he's a, a very creative, wow. um, quirky, amazing guy. He's 13 now. Mm. Um, and I learned so much from him. Mm. And he's naturally, like children are, are curious and open to possibility. Mm -hmm. And the older we get, we get closed and rigid. And just like I was saying about learning mm. and not being so proud to learn from those who are younger than us, even our children, mm. he inspires me all the time wow. to enjoy life, to remember to enjoy life, because mm. he really enjoys life. <laughs> He's just like a joy bubble. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that makes it a lot easier that he's that kind of kid. Mm. But um, honestly, um, I remember really, even when I was a lot younger, I was the first out of my friends to have a child as well. Okay. So just desperately wanting to see another woman doing the kind of things I wanted to do, mm. who was also a parent, and I'm a single parent as well. Mm. And I desperately wanted, just like the conversation we've been having the last year or two about growing up and wanting to see black and brown people in the spaces we want to be in. Mm. It was a bit like that. If you can see it, then you're like, maybe I do belong there, maybe I could do it. And quite honestly, I struggle to see people talking about being a parent and being a manager mm. or, and you know, running a business or, or any of these things. So, and I did see a few and it, you know, I'd ask them questions. So now, just like I was saying before, the, I've definitely got it wrong in lots of times along the way. Mm. But the things that I've worked out, I'm really quick to tell my friends who are having children or who yeah. are pregnant, the little things that made it easier, just or just to show them that I'm still, I might turn up with messy hair and kitty sick down me or something when I was younger, <laughs> but at least I'm here. Yeah. Just, you know, because I didn't <laughs> want to see somebody looking like immaculately doing mm. it like that, because I wasn't. It was a swan yeah, yeah, and a yeah, duck yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, turning up to the radio station. I remember when I stopped doing the breakfast shift 
and I turned up just for a normal shift to say, mm. oh my goodness, you look well. And what I realised is just for a year, I'd looked so dead because I was so tired. She thought I'd like had a makeover. I was like, no, I've just <laughs> had time to put some makeup on. <laughs> but I want to see that. I want to mm. see their mess and people finding it yeah. hard and not just saying it's so easy and yeah. just pray more, you know, and just, I wanted people saying, this is really hard, but I'm doing it anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, so. Because you know what it is, it feels far-fetched if you see someone who's just all put together and it's just like, well, why? I just don't believe it. Why are you not struggling? Like, I'm struggling. Yeah. And it's not like you want someone to also struggle, but you want to feel like. You're not what, the only one. Yeah, like you're not the only one going through it. And it's just, it's, it's funny that we think that way, especially from a parenthood perspective, because I know from my personal experience, I used to be like, before I had a child, I used to think, okay, how come like in the supermarket you see the child and like the child's lost or the child's making a lot of noise and it's just like, how come they're not like controlling <laughs> their kids? And then you go to the supermarket and then your, your, your child decides that, that he wants to do what you've been telling the other parents that they need to control their children over and just like, I get it now. My favourite one is on a flight, like before you've had kids, if there's a kid on the flight oh. and you're like, why can't I control that kid? After you've had kids and you hear that, you're like, I'm so praying for that parent yeah, yeah, right yeah. now. This is so I know what they're going through. I know what they're feeling. It's just perspective changes. It changes so much. Um, Recently, you became an author, and I feel like, has this come from all the changes and things you go through as a parent, or is this something that came through as a child? So you, you've written a book talking to children about race, um, but was there any other factors rather than you being a parent? Well, funny enough, I actually wrote a book years and years ago when I was like 20, I think, when I was in the band Shine, where we did a lot of schools yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. And I wrote a little book that we would give to young people, wow. like about going on with their faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I've always wanted to write. So the university course I went back to did was mm -hmm. actually professional creative writing with media arts. Yep, yep, yep. So I, I've had a passion for writing, but the recent book um, was not something I set out to do at all. The and it, in fact, there were many times when I nearly didn't do it. Um, so what happened was in the summer of 2020, when lots of white people's eyes were being opened to mm -hmm. the struggles that black and brown people have experienced for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And I had some really interesting conversations with friends who had known me for years and really lovely conversations of mm. people just calling me up and saying, oh, do, do you experience some of this stuff? And I'm like, wow. daily? And they're like, I had no idea. We've never talked about this before. And I said, well, yeah, like... And, I, and then I asked myself, why, why don't I talk about it? And it's just, you just get on with it. Mm. Um, it's expected, but also you worry about people thinking you're making everything about race or chip on the child, all of that sort of thing. And I had some really difficult conversations, some disappointing ones, wow. but a lot of really good conversations. I, I've mm -hmm. got really great friends um, and a couple of my white friends who really wanted to do the work. They were really impacted by having their eyes opened mm. to this and being a good friend of mine yet not knowing. Um, and one friend in particular who I'd met when I was pregnant mm. um, and we'd always said we'd write a book together, um, but we didn't. And she moved from London to a rural area, but mm -hmm. she contacted me. And there, it was at a time when some people were having conversations and really approaching it in a really unhelpful way. Mm. But she did it so well. She, she messaged me on Facebook actually, and she said, I've got a question. First thing I want to check, have you even got 
capacity to answer a question around race and racism. Uh -huh. I don't want to just dump this on you. I know it's really hard and mm -hmm. traumatic at the moment. And I thought that's so great that she even acknowledged that. Mm. And then she said, I really want to do better with my kids. I'm seeing my blind spots and I want to, I've taught them um, about um, feminism and the, the inequalities of that. And, mm. and I, I don't want this to be a blind spot for us. And she said, you know, I, I looked for a book on this that I could, because she worked in education and books is always her go-to thing and yeah. there aren't really any. Mm. And she said, I, you know, I don't feel like I can write it as a white person, but I know you always want to write a book. Is this something you would consider wow. doing? And she said, and again, I don't want, I'm not giving you a job to do. I don't want you to do my learning for me. I'm going to be doing that learning journey. Mm. And um, I was like, oh, you so should write it. Like, I, you know, I really think you could write it. Like she's got a master's in education. Mm. And I said, do you mind if I screenshot our conversation? I said, I'm going to um, blot out the bit about the book because I think that's such a good idea. And obviously no one's done it before, mm -hmm. but you've just approached this so well. And so many people are saying, oh, I'm afraid to have the conversation. So she said, no, of course. So I did that. And I obviously didn't blot out well enough or you could tell because a publicist friend of mine mm -hmm. contacted me and said, you haven't said it explicitly, but are you guys talking about a book? And by the way, great conversation. I said, oh yeah, my friend suggested this book. And she said, why don't you write it both together? I'd love to pitch it to my publishers where I work. So I was like, okay. So I went back to my friend Ruth and we just did this one page and gave it to this friend. And they really loved it and it went quite far down the line. But in the end, they decided they wanted to publish a book for children, where we realised our book was for parents to talk to children. Quite, yeah. Because we'd done all this work, the publisher friend said, oh, I really think now you've done this, send it to a few other publishers. And I was like, oh, no one's going to be interested. So we, I think I sent it to two others. And one of them immediately got back and said, we love this idea, we want to do this book. And that's how we ended up doing it. And then when we started to do it, I was so busy, because obviously it's such a sideline and mm. my head is in my management. I was like, why have I taken this on board? And oh my gosh, it was, it was so hard to get it done. I mean, I couldn't have done it without Ruth doing it together. Mm. But at the same time, I really wanted it to be out there. I mean, it's funny enough, when you look now, there is four or five books this year on mm. the same subject, which is great mm. that more and more people want to have this conversation. Yep. Um, but it was definitely hard to finish, not something I, I planned to do. I can't say I'm going to be writing any more books, <laughs> but I'm really glad it's out. If one person picks it up and it helps them to mm. have conversations with their kids and to be honest with yeah, themselves yeah, yeah. um then i'm really happy again another marker along the way and another bit of legacy that i hope will do some good <laughs> you talk about legacy quite a bit and you've done so much so so far in your life what is the next step for loretta andrews um that's a good question i've been thinking about that a lot recently mm. um because I, I think my next step is always what's next for my artists. Mm -hmm. um, and always, I mean, I remember when I first met Governor B, mm -hmm. before we were working on, on a management um, basis, um, just us constantly talking about the idea of seeing people who would speak really freely about their faith mm. uh, in the mainstream music. And that was my vision mm. and that was his vision. And it was, it was, couldn't see it happening. Uh, in fact, you know, as part of his story that he was booked for festivals that would then cancel when they would find out, wow. you know, that he was a Christian. And now just seeing, you know, him last year being playlisted on One Extra and all the things that have happened and mm. being a part of that journey is 
so amazing to me to see that there's people just want really good music, mm -hmm. but they also um, want to see authentic lives being being led mm -hmm. and, and given direction. So um, for me, I'm always thinking about how can we do that more? And when, whenever we've dreamed really big, I always talk about aim here and then you might get there because yeah, if you yeah, aim yeah, here, yeah. you might only get there. <laughs> so, I mean, long, uh, so long term vision wise, I would love to at some point have my own label Ooh. that um, looks after and can facilitate artists who particularly want to do that journey of making a difference through their music. Mm. And um, I think as we live our authentic lives, being our authentic selves, it can't help but have an impact on other people. So true. And because music's such a powerful vehicle, um, it's it makes sense for there to be somewhere for that. And mm -hmm. we are coming into and have come into an era where there's more openness to that. And I think creating space, place, safe spaces on a bigger scale, I would love to be a part of that, seeing um, publishers and mm. labels and all the different elements of the industry being done with integrity yeah. and transparency. Um, to want to see people um, win and do good and make a difference in the world. Mm. Um, and for me, that starts with being with the artists that I've been entrusted to work with mm. and then just seeing how far we can let that ricochet out and, and leave a legacy for those behind us. So it's kind of vague, but when I've kept that sort of thing, make a difference through music and just followed that kind of vague light in the distance, then um, it's helped me to make the decisions along the way. Mm -hmm. So I don't know exactly what it's gonna look like, but I'm just gonna keep walking towards that direction, really. Mm. <laughs> My last question to you. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Like I've learned a lot, which we'll talk about after. But um, my last question to you is, with where you're at now in life, what advice or encouragement would you give to yourself? To myself now? Mm hmm. Mm. That's so hard because being a typical manager, I completely know how to plan other people's lives, mm -hmm. journeys, campaigns, advice. But when it comes to my own, it's a whole other thing. Um, definitely, I enjoy life a lot more these mm. days. Like, um, so Joshua Luke Smith, one mm -hmm. of my artists, who's one of the most incredible people I know. Mm -hmm. Everything that comes out of Josh's mouth, you want to write down. <laughs> and he would just be like, pass the salt, I'm writing that down. <laughs> Uh, but he's he's somebody who's so comfortable in who he is mm -hmm. and impacts everyone he has an interaction with. Mm. But his new book that has just come out really talks about finding the extraordinary in the ordinary. Mm -hmm. And he's talked about that kind of theme for as long as I've known him and mm. it's come out in this book. And I've learned so much about that because in the business that I'm in, it's sometimes you can so be thinking about the goal um, the next album, the next campaign, that you can forget to enjoy the journey. Mm. And even things like seeing my son grow up, you know, he's suddenly 13, he was born yesterday, I swear. <laughs> and just remembering, to, and then dreading the teenage years that I'm literally can see them very yeah. clearly coming. But at the same time, wanting to enjoy every moment with mm. him and with each day creating moments of joy. Mm. So I really try and enjoy my work and I really love, I love my job. Mm. I really try and enjoy my friends. I've got fantastic friends and my relationship with my son and nurture the journey. Mm. 
So I think my advice would be to not be so, be future orientated in terms of having goals mm -hmm. and things to pull you forward, mm. but just remembering to live and mm. enjoy the journey along the way. Um, because when you want success, you can sometimes miss um, just some really beautiful moments. Mm. So I think that would be my advice to me right now. <laughs> Larissa Andrews, thank you so much. Thank you for having a chat. <laughs> I really appreciate it. And for you guys watching at home, this has been the amazing, superb, supreme, incredible Loretta Andrews. And we'll have more content coming for you very, very soon.